Well, tonight we have an important topic to consider. We're going to be talking about a Game of Thrones, Revelation's answer to evil. And uh, I hope that I hope that you've uh, brought your Bibles this evening, because once again we're going to be trying to understand why we live in a world where there is sin and suffering. And I think that it's an important topic to understand. And if you haven't noticed, I tend to think the topics that Revelation addresses are pretty important. It seems as though if they're addressed in the book of Revelation, they're important for us to know in the last days. I really believe that, because these books of prophecy were written for the days in which we're living, the last days of Earth's history. And so we're going to be looking at this from the book of Revelation and also from other parts of the Bible. Remember, the book of Revelation is not meant to be interpreted or understood just by itself, alone, standalone. It's meant to be understood in the context of the Bible, and uh, it borrows language from the rest of the Bible. So this gives us an opportunity to compare Scripture and Scripture. Uh, you know, Jesus gave Bible studies when he was here on this earth in his ministry. And um, if you'll remember the Bible study that he gave on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he had those two, uh, two uh, disciples, Cleopas and his friend, that were making their way, stumbling through their tears back to, to their um, homes in, in Emmaus with, with their disappointed hopes and dashed dreams. And, and, and the Bible says that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets, and he opened unto them the scriptures in the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus didn't just take one passage and say, see, you should have known this, Isaiah 53. He actually said, and this says this, and this says this, and this says this. I think that's the way he would like us to study the Bible. And um, to do so, we have to spend quite a bit of time, don't we? It means we need to spend more time getting to know our Bibles and then comparing Scripture with Scripture and uh, looking at everything the Bible says on a topic. Well, when Jesus was teaching one day, he, uh, he told the story of a sower who had a, uh, a farmer, I should say, who planted a field of seed. And when he, he uh, planted this seed, um, his workers helped him and so forth. And you know how it is. If you have ever planted anything, you find out exactly how it was planted, right? Um, when I was a kid, my parents had a set of children's books, storybooks that helped to teach moral, good moral lessons, you know. And one of the stories was about a boy who decided he, he was being paid by a farmer to plant seed, and he decided it would be easier just to dump it all in one hole and take his money and go. Well, what happens, right? I think the Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out, right? Because a, a few days later, maybe a week later, um, the farmer knew the difference, right? The farmer knew that all the seed had been put in that one hole. Well, that's the way this farmer planted his seed, and pretty soon the seed came up, but there weren't just the good plants that he had planted. There were also a bunch of weeds. And his uh, workers came to him, and they asked him the question. Um, if we look in uh, Luke, I mean Matthew chapter 13 and verse 27. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 27. It says, so the, owners, uh, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seeds in your field? I mean, obviously the answer is yes, right? No one would plant bad seeds. The question then becomes, how then does it have tares? Where did the weeds come from, right? That's what they wanted to know. Why did we sow good seed and yet we have weeds coming up in our field? The, the farmer gave them the answer, and this remembers a parable. 
So it may have been a true story. I don't know. I suppose this happened before. But Jesus is telling it as a parable, as an illustration of truth, spiritual truth, right? And so Jesus uh, gives the farmer's response. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Um, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The, the, the farmer, and somehow I left that out. You hope if you have it, turn, you turn your Bible to Matthew 13, you see it there. What, what the farmer said, the answer to the servants was, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this, right? So somebody actually had the audacity to go maybe by night, by stealth at least, and when he saw his competitor planting his fields, he went and he took weeds, the most obnoxious seeds that he could find, and he scattered them in his neighbor's field. That's not a very nice thing to do, is it? It wasn't the farmer's fault, though, was it? An enemy has done this. And Jesus here explains what it means when he describes the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So Jesus is trying to help us understand that even though we see bad things around us, we can't blame the farmer. The enemy who sowed them is who? The devil. That's what Jesus is trying to teach, a spiritual lesson that he's trying to teach here. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Now, when we think of the suffering and the pain that we see around us in the world, how often do we find God getting credit for the evil that happens? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever heard people say, well, you know, your insurance doesn't cover acts of God? What are acts of God, by the way? Natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, whatever it may be. I'm not sure exactly. I'm not an insurance agent or a lawyer, but um, acts of God are things that are beyond normal, I guess. And it's as if we have in our society forgotten that there's more than one supernatural force out there. If we think that everything supernatural is of, is of one force, then I suppose it would only make sense that we would see these supernatural things happening and say they are acts of God. By the way, friends, let me just, while we're talking about that, let me just deviate a little bit. You know, when I think of the world in which we live, when we watch, I don't watch much television, um, but when I see what's on television, I see this sort of fascination with the supernatural. You ever notice that? And there's this fascination with this, the other world, the other side, the angels or spirits or whoever they are that we see doing things. And what concerns me, what concerns me, a number of things will concern me. And I think when we get, we're going to talk about some of the deceptions that's very clearly spelled out in the book of Revelation in, in upcoming nights. But um, one of the things that concerns me is people act as if there's only one set of supernatural activities going on. And if it's supernatural, it must be of God. I mean, if they had this vision or if they had this experience, it must be of God. There there's, seems to be in our society a, 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 a little amnesia, or, or, or maybe they don't know, maybe they've never been taught that there's actually there's supernatural forces that aren't of God. And that's what we're talking about tonight. When we talk about a game of thrones, we're talking about a struggle behind the scenes, a spiritual struggle that's going on over the destiny of the universe, over the destiny of the universe. 
That's what the Bible unpacks and unfolds for us. Here Jesus says the enemy that has done this, the enemy is the devil. There's a devil out there. And listen, I hope that no one goes away from here thinking, well, you know, Chester really convinced me there's a devil and I should be scared of him. No, that's not what I'm trying to say at all. I'm just saying there ought to be a realization that we have a devil. Listen, when you know there's a devil, the next thing you better know is there's a savior, right? And you better know that the savior is far more powerful than the devil. And uh, we're going to see that in God's word. But I want you from the get-go not to, not to think I'm just trying to scare you into thinking that there's this sinister force out there. You need to know about it. You need to remember it's not just, it's not just God that's out there trying to, trying to reach you and trying to uh, convince you and trying to uh, uh, fight for your soul, you might say. There's also another force out there. There is a great deceiver. There is an enemy of God and of righteousness. And if he's an enemy of God, he's also an enemy of God's people. If God loves you and he's God's enemy, he hates you. He's your enemy. And the devil tries to make all kinds of, of, of pretty promises and, and, and uh, mirages and pretty lights and candy coat his poison, but the devil doesn't have anything good out for you. The only reason he cares about you and me is because he wants to hurt God. And he's involved in this conflict. So let's look into our Bibles at what the, uh, the book of Revelation tells us. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. I think you may have seen that already in your discussion time, but we're going to be opening God's Word. We're going to be trying to understand exactly what it is that um, the Bible teaches us about the devil and, um, and what he's doing here on this world at this point. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, one of the most astounding verses in all the scriptures. It says, are you there? It says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. So here you have, here you have a war happening in the most unlikely place for war to ever arise. War in heaven. War in the place where there should have been only peace and love. This is where God himself dwelt and, and reigns. These were God's own creatures. This is an amazing, amazing passage. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Now, before we go on, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I believe that you can make a compelling case from God's Word and God's Word alone that Michael here is another name. It's used in the book of Revelation, and it's another name for Jesus. Okay? Now, I'll tell you how you can make this, this argument. If you look in John chapter 5, about verses 27 and 28, the Bible says, The hour is coming when those who are in the grave shall hear His voice. Who's His voice? Who's He talking about? Jesus' voice, right? There's the hours coming when, when those who are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth, right? In other words, it's, it's Jesus' voice that will raise the dead. John 5, 27 and 28. Then you look, and, and we don't turn there right now, but um, you can write it down in your notes if you like. The last book of the Bible, just before Revelation, it's a one-chapter book. Um, it's the book of Jude, and it's verse 9. And this is um, what it says. It says, Michael the archangel, when who's arguing with the devil over the body of Moses. So what's the archangel's name? Michael. 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 Now compare this to... Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and there you find the archangel, his voice raises the dead. Okay? Now, are you with me? The archangel's voice raises the dead. 
Whose voice raises the dead according to John 5? Jesus' voice raises the dead. And in Jude, it calls the archangel Michael. Are you with me? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Now, some people are going to say, wait a minute, are you saying that Jesus is an angel? Absolutely not. I believe that Jesus is the eternal pre-existent Son of God. The Bible says, in him, ha in him was life, and life was the light of men. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, right? He was in the beginning with God. He was God. I believe that in Jesus is life, original, unborrowed, underived. He is the source of life. He is a part of the Godhead, and he's just as much God as the Father is God. There's no question in my mind about that. I'm not trying to say he's, the, he's an angel. When it says archangel, it can simply mean he is above the angels. That's the prefix in Latin, above the angels. Archbishop means you're above the bishops, right? You're no longer a bishop, you're an archbishop. And that's the, uh, that's the prefix that we're using here. So, and this begins to make a little bit of sense to us as we begin to look later on. Later on, you're going to find out, I believe, um, there's good evidence to believe that one of the reasons this whole great controversy between good and evil, Christ and Satan, came about was because there was a, I guess you might say, a competition between God in the person of Christ, Jesus, Michael, and one of his created beings who didn't understand that he couldn't be Michael. He couldn't be God. He couldn't because he was a created being. A created being cannot be the creator. Um, we're going to get to that. Revelation chapter 12 says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, continuing on, it says, But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was, uh, who deceives the whole world uh, was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, who's this great dragon that Revelation is talking about here in Revelation chapter 12? We look back a few verses in Revelation 12 and verse 3. It says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So evidently in this war that broke out in heaven and where the dragon did not prevail against Michael, but instead my, uh, the dragon was cast out of heaven, evidently a third of the angels were cast out with him. A third of the angels. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a deception so insidious, so, so deceptive and so uh, hard to understand that one-third of the created beings, holy beings created to serve God, one-third of them would end up siding with the enemy of God rather than God himself. Can you imagine that kind of a, a conflict? Is it sometimes hard to tell between truth and error? It sometimes is. In fact, Jesus said, talking about the days in which we're living, that, that if it were possible, the devil would deceive even the very elect. That's why I think it's so important. If the devil could deceive angels in heaven, you think we, you think we stand much chance? What do you think we ought to be doing? I think we ought to be praying, asking God to guide us. I think we ought to be studying his word because only in his word can we find the foundation of truth. Um, I believe that we have a responsibility 
to do that. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. This is an amazing story, a story of an angel in heaven, a high-ranking angel in heaven, who became discontented with his position. He became jealous of Jesus. In fact, some people have surmised because of the way the story happens and the, uh, the way Jesus is called the, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and so forth, that this fall of the devil took place sometime around the creation of this world, that maybe even there was a dissatisfaction with, with this angel thinking he should have a greater role. Remember who did we study last night was the active agent in creation? Jesus was. Now, I'm not trying to say that Jesus was not God, but I believe He's God. I hope that's very, very clear. But if in heaven, Jesus, Michael, as the archangel, if He took a form like one of the angels, you can imagine how others might start to think, well, you know what, I could be just doing what He's doing. Maybe they could get a little jealous. And evidently, it's something like this that happened. We read the account of it in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 14. These are amazing verses because these unlock the uh, history of this war which took place in heaven. We read about it in Revelation chapter 12, but these verses in Ezekiel and ones we're going to look at in Isaiah, they help pull back the drapes and help us to see what actually was taking place in that conflict as it began. Thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, this gives us an important clue as to who this person was and how high their position in heaven actually was. From our, uh, our little uh, model of the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly throne room, the tabernacle or the temple, you'll remember that what was the most uh, sacred part of the tabernacle or of the temple? Well, we call it the most holy place, right? In the Greek, it was the hahagion, the holy of holies, you might say. So here's the, the most holy place where, where what article of furniture was in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. And remember, what was it like? It was a box. Inside was, uh, inside, under the lid was, a, was the Ten Commandments that God um, gave to Moses. And um, on top, what was, what was there? The mercy seat. And what was above the mercy seat? Well, there were on either side of the mercy seat, but what was right above the mercy seat? At least in the first temple, in Solomon's temple, there was the glory of God, the very presence of God remember? And on either side of the mercy seat, there were the two cherubs. There were the cherubim that covered, their, uh, that covered with their wings the presence of God. Now, this we understand to be the same description that is being used right here when Ezekiel says, you were the anointed cherub that covers. He's using the same type of terminology as the cherubs that were right there on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, symbolizing the very presence of God where the Shekinah glory dwelt. There were two angels, one on either side of the throne. Those would have to have been the most honored positions in all of heaven, wouldn't you think? The most trusted, the most honored. They weren't God, but they were next to God. And here Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is saying, he's quoting what the Lord is saying, you were 
past tense. You were the cherub, the anointed cherub who covers. You were in the holy mountain of God, right there in the very presence of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Here we see an artist's conception of what that throne may have looked like. Of course, in the Ark of the Covenant, they were much closer and over the throne, but two very, very high positions symbolized in the, in the earthly tabernacle and in the Ark of the Covenant. And, and here, this being was one of those. However, even though he was in this exalted a position, even though he was the one who was created perfect, he was not content with being just next to God. He wanted to be in the place of God. He wanted to take the very throne of God. In fact, he wanted to be above the throne of God. He wanted to be God. Pride and jealousy began in a rebellion in Lucifer's heart. And so God says to Lucifer in, in um, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 15, continuing on, uh, 28, verse 15, continuing on, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. What, did he, what happened? This is the anointed cherub that covers. You were right there in the presence of God, the holy mountain of God. You were created perfect. Can you blame God for Lucifer? According to the Bible, the Bible says he was created perfect, right? He didn't create him with some faulty DNA, some genetics that programmed him to sin. You know, we, we talk about um, how this is hard to understand, and the Bible acknowledges that fact. In fact, we find in the New Testament this phrase, the mystery of iniquity. Have you read that? The mystery of iniquity, that is something we can never fully understand, something we will never fully comprehend. How in a perfect being in a perfect world, sin could still arise. And yet, that's not the only mystery that's talked about in the Bible. It also talks about the mystery of godliness. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go on. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You, were corru you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. In Isaiah's description of this, this is how he says it. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He even says, I will be like the Most High. I will be like the Most High. Do you notice something that is being repeated over and over in this description of Lucifer's ambition? What's repeated over and over? Lucifer had an eye problem, didn't he? And what we find is, in this conflict between Michael and the dragon, in this conflict between Christ and Satan, we have a conflict of selfishness and pride on one hand being displayed, and on the other hand, God seeking to reveal His character of unselfish love. Contrasting characters, contrasting agendas. So Lucifer is there, he's a created being, he wants to be more than he is. He wants to be even in the very place of God. He says, I will be like the Most High. And as he looked around, he began to think, you know, I could do this better, or I could do that better, or maybe God isn't quite in touch with His people. And he began to talk to some of the other angels and actually spread discontent and dissatisfaction among them as well. Sort of like a rotten piece of fruit in an apple box, right? It spreads, doesn't it? And as 
As Lucifer continued to talk, he began to spread his rebellion to other angels in heaven. And, you know, you might think, well, why did they fall for that? I'm sure Lucifer did it in all of the best motives. I'm sure he went to them and said, you know what, we could make things better here. I think we should try to help God. Don't you think we could do this and this? And don't you think God tries to do too many things on his own by himself? Lucifer must have, have, have sounded like he was coming across with very good ideas. But in fact, Lucifer, Lucifer's ideas weren't good ideas. They were ideas that were sinister. They were ideas that were actually seeking to overthrow and subvert the very government of God. And so as Lucifer continues to talk among, among others, you might think, well, why didn't, the devil why didn't God just destroy the devil at that point? Why didn't he just say, that's it, that's enough? We don't need the devil, we can just zap him out of existence. I mean, couldn't God have done that, yes or no? Yes, yes he could have done that. He could have said, there's, there's, no, there's no reason for me to leave Lucifer around, running around heaven, telling all of these half-truths and trying to look like he's really concerned, but really he's concerned about himself. He could have just zapped him out of heaven. You think the other angels would have said, well, I think we better just get into line. You think they might have said that? If God had just destroyed Lucifer, do you think it might have brought about a, a, uh, a bit of conformity at least? But would that conformity have been a conformity out of love or fear? You see, there's something you have to understand about God. Lucifer can use all kinds of nefarious means to do his work, but God cannot do anything that's out of harmony with his character. God is a God of love. And so God would not have wanted to uh, destroy Lucifer because if he had, he would have created an atmosphere of fear in heaven rather than an atmosphere of love. And so God chose to throw uh, and uh, banish Lucifer and his sympathizers out of heaven um, instead of destroying him because he knew that there must be time for Lucifer's character to be revealed, and also for the watching angels and universe to see his own character and to see who was really right, to make a decision in this great conflict that had begun in heaven. God is not one who wants us to um, obey just because we're programmed to obey. Um, I mentioned earlier, God is a God of freedom. He died so that we could have freedom, right? He stretched out his arms and he says, this is how committed I am to human freedom. I'm going to die to give you a choice. That choice could be to reject me, but I want you to have that choice. Without his death, we wouldn't have a choice. We'd just be doomed. So Jesus, God is committed to freedom. And here in heaven, when he could have destroyed Lucifer, he chose not to. I mean, how many of you have been parents, have children? Quite a few of you. Wouldn't you like a child that just, you know, when it was time to get up, they woke up, they smiled, they said, they put on their clothes, they said, good morning, mommy, I love you, and um, they got all their things ready for school, and they were waiting in the car when you got out there, and everything was just all, you always just programmed like a clock. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> be careful. Um, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make anyone here, anyone here get any ideas. Um, that would be a robot, wouldn't it? If it was just programmed, I mean, do any of you ever have, pro any of you ever have fun with um, your smartphones? 
few years ago, I got a smartphone, and I, when Siri came out, I started, I started giving her a hard time. And um, do you ever just ask her nonsensical questions or, yeah? Um, I love to see some of the hilarious responses she'll come back with. And one of the fastest ways to get, a, get some interesting responses from her is um, to ask her, Siri, you know, do you love me? Or, Siri, will you marry me? I remember one time she said to me, Chester, marriage is not in my end user agreement. <laughs> I could program a voice to say I love you every morning. Would that really be comforting and touching to me? No, why? Because it doesn't really love me. It's, it's just programmed to say that. And God didn't want a universe. He doesn't want a universe. Simply programmed to love Him. He wants a universe where there's freedom. Because only where there's freedom can there be genuine love. And so He has to allow freedom in order for this, his principle of who he is, to, uh, in order for him to be true to himself. God is a God of love. And so he can only be happy in a love relationship. And so he gives us the power of choice to either obey or not to obey. Out of fairness and out of love, God had to allow Satan the freedom, the right, to develop his new and improved way of governing. And then let people decide who was really telling the truth. Because only then, when they'd made a decision for themselves, when they knew for themselves, only then would they be able to love him from a pure heart for the ceaseless ages of eternity. Never out of fear and out of intimidation. And so we find the story that uh, begins in Genesis chapter 2, verses 6 through thir- uh, 16 through 3, verse 13. I want you to turn your Bibles there. We're going to look here at a, a few verses, and um, we're going to see how this rebellion that came uh, from heaven actually landed here on earth. Um, another clue that perhaps the creation of this world was part of the challenge between Christ and Satan. You remember, Christ is the active agent in creating this world. He creates man in, in his own image. And um, f- for some reason, at that time, it was necessary. He saw that it was necessary for the freedom of the watching world, the right of the angels who had not fallen. If he just said, no, Lucifer can't go anywhere, he can't tell anybody, it would look like he's trying to keep his side of the story, the only side of the story people heard, Right? And so he gives access to this new planet, planet Earth, and the leader of the new planet, the, uh, uh, the first parents, Adam and Eve, who were supposed to have dominion over the earth. He gave Lucifer access to them, but it was limited access, wasn't it? It was only through one tree in the middle of the garden. And uh, verse 16, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, out of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The, uh, the, word, the frank phrase is, dying you will die. Um, there will be death that comes upon you. 
And so this is the warning that God gave to Adam and Eve. You know the story. We don't take time to look at all of it here, but the uh, serpent was very cunning, very subtle. Evidently, at that point, it wasn't like the snakes we have today who are sort of creepy and crawly and scary. Um, the other night, actually, we were walking, my wife and I, and we, I thought I saw something, and sure enough, there was a poisonous snake crossing the road right in in front of us, and that's something we don't like to see now, right? Especially when we're not really prepared for it. Um, but at th- that time, there was no sin. There were no snakes that hurt anybody, right? And the serpent was more cunning, it says, than, or more subtle than any beast of the field. And this serpent began talking to, say, to, to Eve. Satan's talking through the serpent, and he's saying, has God said, did he really say? Did he really say you shouldn't eat of any tree? And the woman replies, and the serpent has this conversation with her where the first lie recorded in the Bible is told here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. The serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. And then he tries to make God look like he's the one who's trying to keep Adam and Eve from something good. God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, your eyes are going to be opened. And you're going to know both good or evil. Was that true or not? It was true. What, the deception in that statement was not that their eyes were going to be opened and they'd know good and evil. The deception was that that would somehow be desirable. Isn't that something how the devil works? He still works the same way. Um, he tries to make something look good that's really not good. Imagine how terrible the knowledge of good and evil is. I wish humanity never knew what evil was. I wish we just left that to God to know. That was not an advantage that we needed to have. And here you have the devil convincing the woman that she could eat this fruit, and they ate it. They both knew that they were um, naked, and they hid from God. And the story goes on here of how they have this conversation. And by the way, when God came on the scene of things, the devil... I mean, the serpent was still there. Adam and Eve were there. And the uh, Adam, who's supposed to be, you know, an adult, responsible party, who does he blame for this whole problem? His wife. The first day of sin, they have a marital dispute. Can you imagine? It didn't take very long. Eve, who does she blame? The serpent. Who you created, by the way, God partly in there you know god could have just said come on you guys i'll just recreate i mean there's more clay out here right (laughs) i mean imagine how disappointing this was to god but instead he did something very amazing in genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 we have what we call in theological terms the Proto-Evangelium. This is the Latin for the very first presentation of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, God says, look, I'm not going to wipe you out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have a plan. Notice what it says. And I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, that's the woman's seed, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, which is more serious, a crushed head or a crushed heel? 
crushed head. And the seed of the woman was promised in the very first encounter with sin that humanity had. The seed of the woman was promised who would come along and deal a fatal blow to the head of the serpent, to the head of Satan. God had a plan whereby he would rescue. He would rescue this planet Earth. He shall bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. So when Jesus came, he came as a human being, the seed of the woman. And he lived a life of ministry and everything that Jesus did was the antithesis of what the devil had tried to be. Jesus came not seeking a higher position, but he was born in a barn, right? He lived a humble life. He did a humble work. The devil had aspired to greatness. Jesus aspired to service. Complete polar opposites. Because Jesus' mission on earth was to reveal the character of God to this world. Only when we understand the character of Satan and the character of God can we make an intelligent decision that we will be confident throughout all of eternity we will never, we will never renege on. We will never have our minds changed about. Only when we understand who God is and who Satan is. And so Jesus came to reveal who Satan was. And as he was teaching in the temple one day, there was a woman who had been sick for many years and Jesus actually healed her. And as he healed her, there was a murmuring and complaining because he had healed her on the Sabbath day. And the uh, Jewish leaders, the temple leaders, were unhappy that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. And um, he, he rebuked them in these words, Luke chapter 13 and verse 16. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Satan... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Make sure you're reading with me, okay? And uh, oh, check your Bibles later. Um, I'm doing my best, all right? Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom who? Satan. Satan has bound these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Now, what's interesting about this story is what does Jesus say about her sickness? Who had bound this woman? Satan. Satan. Jesus is trying to help people understand. Not only is he here to make people whole, Satan by his very nature, is here to destroy lives. Satan, by his very nature, is a person who wants to destroy our bodies, our minds, our souls. Satan had bound this woman. In fact, Satan is the sinister force behind all disease and heartache and suffering and death. Turn with me to the book of Job. Job, we find another story which illustrates how Satan is behind suffering in the world around us. The book of Job... Here, uh, one of the books we believe was written by Moses as well, um, talking about the early history of, of the world. Job um, was obviously a, a hero, a, a man of God that um, many had, had, many, had a large influence over many people, and um, he lived in the land of Uz. And uh, we see here in the first verse of the first chapter, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, one who feared God and eschewed evil or avoided evil. Um, so here was a man who had a lot of good things going for him. He was a godly man. Um, but we find here in Job chapter 1 a story. It's a very fascinating story, a story that it's hard for us to completely understand. It says in verse 6, look with me down verse 6. It says that there came a day 
when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, without spending a lot of time on this verse, we talk about, the psalmist talks about when God created this earth, the stars of God sang for joy. Um, evidently, there were those who, before the creation, were already living in, a, uh, in this universe, intelligent beings, who had um, the opportunity of seeing creation. And this is what I believe, okay? You can take it for what, for what it's worth right now. But what I believe is that there are other inhabited planets in this world. I believe that. I believe that the sons of God spoken of here are the heads of those other inhabited worlds, just like Adam was supposed to be the head of, those, of this inhabited world. Now, they're not made in the image of God. Um, I don't believe that. But I believe that there are others who are um, in other worlds that someday you and I are going to have the chance of meeting. They're also spectators. Um, Paul says, We're a, we, are a, we are made a spectacle unto angels, unto worlds, and to men. Very interesting um, what Paul says. So here it says, There's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. It's as if there's a heavenly council going on. And who's there? Satan came also among them. Now, what would Satan be doing there? He's been kicked out of heaven, right? He and his angels are no longer a part of the angelic host. It says in verse 7, The Lord said unto Satan, Where are you coming from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, why would Satan give that kind of an answer? It was a sassy answer. The earth is my territory. I go wherever I want on earth. I rule there. Challenge. After all, Adam had been the head of the human race, the ruler of this planet, and now he is conceded by obeying Lucifer that right. Now Lucifer is in charge. Evidently, it's what he's saying here. Verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him, in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one who fears God and eschews evil or avoids evil? Satan, guess what? You don't rule everybody. I've got my guy there too. And Satan says, yeah, but that's not fair because you bless him. Does Satan... Uh, does Job fear you for nothing? That's what he asks in verse 9. Have you not made a hedge about him and about all his house and about all that he has on his, every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. Verse 11, now put forth your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, Lucifer, Satan here is claiming that this controversy isn't fair. That God's protecting his people. And that's why he hasn't been able to win him over to, Satan hasn't been over, able to win them over to his own side. Well, that's quite a challenge, isn't it? It's quite a challenge. So God says in verse 11, verse, uh, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. And if you read the rest of chapter 1, you'll find out, that it was quite a story of what happened. Satan's claiming to represent God there in the heavenly uh, universe. Uh, 
And now Job is, Job is unaware that this is going on. I mean, Job wasn't there. Job would have no idea. The next thing Job knows is there's bad news. There came a messenger into Job. And uh, first the Sabaeans came and stole Job's cattle and murdered his workers. Um, in rapid fire succession, second, lightning struck his herd and killed his sheep and his shepherds. Um, third, the Chaldeans came and they plundered Job's camels. They stole all his camels. And finally, getting closer to home, a tornado came and demolished his older son's, oldest son's house and all of his children were there. All of his ten kids were in the home and they were killed in this storm. Can you imagine these type of events happening in rapid succession in your life? Maybe some of us can. We've gone through some pretty hard times. But Job had no idea what was going on. He had no way of knowing that God wasn't behind this. He knew that God had blessed him with these things. But if we, if we read what um, Job would say, he, his faith in God was actually unchanged. He says in Job chapter 1, verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Lucifer heads up to heaven again. And um, he says, the next council comes around and Lucifer's there again, Satan's there again. And, and once again, God says, have you considered my servant Job? This is verses four through six of the next chapter, Job chapter two. Have you considered my servant Job, how, how he's still faithful to me? And uh, the devil has another uh, answer. Um, he says in verse Verses 4 through 6, Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but now stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And so the devil went from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils, the Bible says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. You think that would be a challenge? In all this, the Bible says, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Even though he lost everything he had, even though he was afflicted with these boils, even though his wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Job's attitude was, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He had a love for God that superseded any of these challenges that he could have experienced. Now, you might say, well, why did God allow that? Why, why would He? One thing we know is that our lives are a part of a larger meta-narrative. Are you following what I'm saying? Our lives are a part of a bigger picture that God and the watching universe sees. And I suspect that if Job knew the resounding witness that he was giving to the watching worlds of what faith in God and what the character of God was really like, Job would have been fine with it too. I think, that's, I think, Job, I think Job didn't understand at the time. And I think sometimes we go through things we don't understand at the time. But someday we're going to understand it. Because God is working to restore the universe to perfection. We're not there yet. 
But he's working. He's working to reveal the devil's character, allow it to be revealed, and he's working to reveal his character, his character of love. Who was it, after all, who plagued Job? Was it God? Was it God that took away all his things? No. Who was it that uh, stole his livestock and his servants? Who was responsible? Was God really the one responsible? Can you blame God for those things? No, it's very clear from this story. When the curtains are pulled back and we see behind the scenes, it's very clear that Satan was responsible for those things. Who brought the tornado that destroyed his sons and daughters? I mean, it's very clear that Satan left the presence of the Lord and went and did these things. It's very clear that the devil is the one who's responsible. Does God allow it? He does, but he allows it because there has to be a a demonstration before the universe of the devil's plan, his character, and God's plan and his character. There has to be this revelation. The Lord may allow difficulties to come to test our loyalty and love, to separate our hearts from this world, but Satan is the guilty one responsible for evil on this planet earth. You and I are caught in the middle of this great cosmic conflict, this drama between authority and lawlessness, between the creator and the creature, between the, um, the God and the original rebel. We're not just spectators, friends. We are involved, whether we want to be or not. And this is why it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why? Why is this woe? For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a what? A short time. Let me tell you something, friends. If there's good news in the book of Revelation, the good news is that God is not going to allow the devil a long time to do this work. There's only a short time. You might say, well, you know, five, six thousand years, ten thousand years, whatever it is, it seems like a really long time. I mean, ten years seems like a long time to us, right? But God is not going to allow this to continue forever. The devil even knows it. The devil knows he's, he's on a limited time because he is a defeated foe. And he knows his time is short. He's come down to this earth with great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So Jesus came down here to this earth. He was, he, he was taken to Bethlehem where he was born. And, um, and, you know, the devil tried to destroy Jesus even as he was a baby. Remember Herod sending his armies to Bethlehem? killing all of the baby children, uh, the baby boys, trying to eliminate this, this promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent. The devil wanted to eliminate him from the get-go. But who won that conflict? Listen, the, the Bible says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, take your, take your child to Egypt. And they split. And all those children died. Terrible thing that the devil did. Did God do that? Absolutely not. The devil did it, trying to destroy the, the baby Jesus. He, he, uh, the, Jesus met the devil head on in the temptation in the wilderness. The devil appears as an angel from heaven trying to help him. Now just turn these stones into bread. What was he trying to do? The devil was trying to elicit in Jesus a selfish response. The devil is all about self-serving, right? He's all about what I can get. And he's trying, to get the, he's trying to get Jesus to do something that's selfish, e- selfish, egocentric. Turn these stone into bread. Do some, use your power to meet your own personal needs, selfishly. That was his character, but it wasn't Jesus' character. So he says, man shall not live by bread alone, 
by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Remember he took him up to the Thai temple and he said, um, cast yourself down, the Lord, will, the Lord will pick you up, right? He even quoted scripture. You know the devil knows the Bible? Yeah. The devil quoted scripture. Jesus said, you should not tempt the Lord your God. Took him onto the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all of this. You can have an easy way out. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll concede if you'll just bow down and worship me. He's appealing to this selfish human nature that the devil knew that he had a selfish nature. He wanted Jesus to have one too, and Jesus wouldn't be tempted because God is not like us, self-seeking. He came to this earth to show us a completely different character altogether. He was here to give, not to take, to serve, not to be served. The devil incited the crowd at the cross to shout, crucify him. Bring yourself down from the cross. If you're really the son of God, save yourself. All of that was trying to get Jesus to just in one instance exhibit the character of Satan, the selfishness. But who won that round? Let me tell you, friends, when Jesus won that round, the devil knew his time was up. When Jesus hung on the cross, when his head fell to his chest and he said, it is finished, and the devil knew he had spent 33 and a half years trying to get Jesus to act selfishly, and he had failed, the devil knew that he might win some battles here on this earth, but the war is won by Jesus Christ. The devil knew the destiny of earth is forever certain and sure. There's no question in anyone's mind that's watching this conflict. All of heaven now knows when they see God himself consenting to die for a rebellious people that are angry and yelling, crucify him. When they see God himself saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When they see the devil in anger stirring up the, the crowd and trying to get them in a frenzy to, to make it even more painful for Jesus, the character of these two beings was on full display. The character of love and unselfishness. The character of selfishness and hatred. Oh, friends, this is what the world needs to see. The world needs to see these two characters. The issue today is who are we going to believe? Who are we going to follow? Whose side are we going to be on in this great conflict between good and evil? Are we going to be on the side of a loving God or on the side of a fallen angel? You may be wondering about sorrow and heartache and difficulty in your own life. You may be wondering about the loss of a child or a loved one. Or you may be asking, where is God at this point in my life? To every restless and lonely and aching, burdened heart, Jesus has an invitation. In Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you thankful for that invitation? Joseph Scriven was an Irishman born in the year 1819. He was a graduate of Trinity College in Dublin. He was well-educated from a good family. His life seemed to be going well. He was in his early 20s. He was engaged to be married when one day a terrible tragic accident happened. Joseph and his fiancée were 
on a horse crossing a bridge when the fiance's horse slipped and she fell into the water and drowned. He watched, unable to save her. After this heartbreaking tragedy, Joseph moved to away from Ireland and the memories that Ireland held, and he moved to the New World. He moved to Canada. He taught in school there, and then he tutored for a while, and eventually he fell in love again. And this time, just before he was to be married the second time, well, he'd never married the first time, but this before he was about to have his marriage for the second time, he, his fiance got sick of pneumonia and passed away. Joseph never really recovered. He never had really much of a personal friendship with people after that. He ended up surviving, supporting himself as a woodcutter, and he was known as someone who would just find out the poor, the widows, and he would split wood for them. There in the cold winters of Port Hope, Canada. He got up in years, and the one person who he was close to in this world was his mother. Now, she was all the way back in Ireland still, but they held a, a constant communication back and forth, Joseph and his mother. And uh, one day, Joseph received a letter in which he learned that his mother's fail his mother's health was failing and she wasn't going to live much longer. Joseph didn't know what to do. He was unable to go and visit her and all he could do was write a poem. He wrote a poem that he entitled Pray Without Ceasing. And you may be familiar with some of the words. His poem said, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You know, maybe tonight you're feeling a little bit like Joseph Scriven. You may feel that the great controversy is not just something we read about in this good book, but it's something that you can see going on in your own life. You see that pattern in your heart. You've experienced it in, in, the, in the events of your days. Perhaps you're going through family problems. Maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with a uh, child. Perhaps you have problems, financial reverses. You've lost a job. Credit card bills are mounting. Maybe you're uncertain about that diagnosis. I don't know what you're going through today, but one thing that we can know is that we need help. We need help outside of ourselves. We need comfort. We need God's power. We need His healing touch. You need a sense that His arms are wrapped around you and folding you in His love. You need a sense that He's whispering in your ear saying, My child... It's going to be okay. Tonight we're going to sing this song. What a friend we have in Jesus. And as we sing this song, I'm going to invite you, if there's a burden on your heart, 
this conflict between good and evil has been overwhelming. There's something that's just taking you down. Something you just want to give to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to just make your way forward, and we're going to have a special prayer here tonight as we do so. So let's sing this song. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Shall we stand together as we sing? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. To the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield you. The find a solace there. Oh, Father God, we just thank you that we have a friend in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that in the book of Revelation, he is the conqueror. We thank you that the devil is a defeated foe. And Lord, tonight we've come forward because there's some burden we want to leave with Jesus tonight. We want to give him our hearts, our burdens, our sorrows. We want to let him know that we want to be on his side in this great controversy. Father, our hearts are naturally selfish. We're more like the character of Satan than the character of Jesus. Lord, please change us. Please convert us. Please change my heart. Make me more like Jesus. Make me like Job, whom you can say, Satan, have you considered my servant Chester? Lord, I pray that might be the experience of every single one who has 
who is here tonight. Lord, there are some here with burdens. I pray that you would carry those burdens. There are some here with sorrows. I pray that you would comfort those sorrows. There are some with family members they want your spirit to touch. I pray that you would work in their lives and their hearts. Lord, help us to take all of these things to you in prayer, to remember that we have a friend who is also the conqueror and the soon coming king. Thank you for the promise that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. May the devil be a defeated foe in our lives as we reflect not his character, but the character of our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.